0: great strength and your power almighty but God you're good to have a great God and not a good God would be a disaster to all of us but you are good you are loving you are kind you are merciful and you are grace filled you have blessed and poured out the best that heaven has to offer brought it in the form of Jesus Christ God made flesh and dwelt among us and in that we see the fullness of your goodness how you love and care you call the the, the, the strong hearted or the strong neck to repent and you love and you draw close those that are deemed unclean, you heal the sick you push against the religious you call men unto yourself you may give them life and love and mercy and grace and we have just trouble seeing it God the pictures of the cross are brought forward for us to see your greatness where justice has to be done but for us to see your goodness where love still prevails and in Jesus we see that at the cross of Calvary we see that and then we see that magnificent victory that first resurrection Sunday it is why we gather We open the word to see what you have to say next, to see what you're doing in our lives, to see what you're going to do in our lives to come. We thank you for the hope and the peace and the joy that comes even in the hardest of moments. So many this morning are grieving, many are celebrating. Lord, we need you to meet us where we're at. We need your word to be. Uh, open where we are at in our heart God where we are at in our life and you need to move us, push us, prod us in the right direction Lord we love you this morning you're our only hope Jesus said in John chapter 6 are we going to leave too and I love Peter's response where else are we going to go you have the words of life so we beg you this morning pour those words of life out on us Help us, God, to see just a little above the clouds today. Help us to see the glory of God, the goodness of God, and help us to rejoice like rarely we ever have. Jesus, we love you, and we give this time together. Your sweetness, let it fill this place. It's in your name we pray. In your name we get to pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. be releasing this morning for Children's Church. has been so good to our church this is almost an intermission and we come in uh Some mornings it's easy to get started, some mornings it's a little bit harder. We come in this morning and just, there's a heaviness here and we just need uh, the Lord just to to intervene, to love, and to care for uh, those that are in desperate need of peace and joy and hope um, that really only He can provide. And you and I, uh, we find ourselves in moments where um, all this theology that we've talked about for years, all of these things that are lofty and high and lifted up, uh, that are you know, hard to grab or whatever else. There comes a a moment in time in our lives when those things really matter. And it's why we shouldn't run from words like theology. It's definitely why we shouldn't uh, avoid deep passages of scripture, because you and I are going to be forced into a moment. Our children are going to be forced into it where, you know, you have to pick what you actually believe. And your, your theology and the way you live your life, they're going to match up. And that's why ours needs to be deep and strong and robust because the life that we're living, there are going to be moments that are strong and hard and we're going to be very, very needy. And sometimes in those moments, the only thing you have to grab a hold of, the feelings will not be there. Listen to me very carefully. This is why you and I take every thought captive. There will come time in your life when the feelings won't be there. They will have to be caught by your mind and they will have to be sifted through the truths Of Scripture, And when that moment comes, what you and I believe, it better be robust, it better be big enough to deal with whatever's going on. And so as we push for hard things in Sunday school, Sunday mornings, as we teach hard things in scripture, as the expectation in our conversations together privately are to do hard things, understand that it's not for nothing. There's going to come a day when your faith is going to hang on the hardest things you've ever learned the hardest pieces you've ever had to struggle through, they're going to be hanging that day, and you're going to hope and beg and pray for a deep and strong theology while you wrestle with God through your feelings. Amen? So don't neglect those things. Don't run from them. The weightier things of Scripture, the the headier things of Scripture, get in there and enjoy those things because one day you will need them or your friend will need them. And you're going to be called upon with that phone call. And then it's too late to prepare. So this is why we push and why we struggle and why we do the things that we do. Uh, I hope you are challenged every time we meet Sunday school, Sunday morning, Wednesday nights. I hope we are challenging each other to live according to the mandates and the dictates of scripture. Because God is good and this world is bad. And hard things are going to happen. And we need to be ready. And if six months ago we didn't believe that was a reality in our culture, these last six months has taught us otherwise, right? The most prosperous, wealthiest, safest nation in the world has been brought to its knees. So you and I could be given that check that this life is not secure. You and I are just as needy as the first century Christians when they were being chased down and hunted and everything else. When every day of their life was on the line and they were living it for the glory of God, you and I have been reminded Uh, unfortunately in a very stark manner that we are the same as they were and we need to rejoice that God has given us that lesson because the goal is always to be ready to meet him, Christian the goal is not to have a fat 401k the goal is not to retire at 50 and do what you want the rest of your life the goal is not so many of these other things, the goal is when you and I meet Jesus face to face the goal is to hear well done and a lot of times the hardest things in your life will be the only things that prepare us for that. As we look today, we're going uh, to be in 1 Samuel chapter 31. We're going to come to the end of the life of Saul this morning. And, and tying these pieces together of the heaviness of just the moment and the things that we've gone through, I'm going to, to leave you today with, with a word that is uh, so often neglected. It's so often neglected because in order to preach about it, in order to, to push against it, you and I have to be willing to admit that we're wrong. Ooh. Right? Nobody likes that. Nobody likes that. Our flesh pushes against it just to admit. And the idea of repentance that we're going to get to later, we're going to see it in the life of Saul because what's so damaging about his life is I'm just going to throw it to you now and you can chew on it in the back of your mind. Saul lived a life void of real repentance. And so, the, so though he started with some serious potential, he lands in the realm of utter curse. And he does so because he lives void, without biblical repentance. So where have we been the last couple weeks as we get back into, uh, I missed two weeks ago. Thank you, Justin. Enjoyed uh, the sermon, enjoyed the music, really enjoyed the whole service uh, that I was able to watch on YouTube. Very thankful uh, for those that are working so hard to get us technology-wise uh, up to speed, and you're doing a great job. So thank you. Uh, I was able to watch half on vacation and then half home last week, but really enjoyed uh, the sermon. Uh, that we're we're not we're going away we haven't been before. Right? And to chase or to follow hard after the spirit of God, the ark of God, to see God move and to go with it is a wonderful message for our moment. You understand no matter what happens tomorrow, you and I still have that access to see God work, to watch where he's going and follow hard after it. We still have that access no matter what the details are when you and I roll out of bed tomorrow. God is still working. The plan is still going forward. And this stuff has not caught him off guard. So three weeks ago, we talked about the fool, a fool, and the peacemaker, right? Nabal, David, and Abigail. We talked about the difference between a lifetime of being a fool, a foolish moment, and then how Abigail enters in as a mighty peacemaker and somebody that even Jesus would point to later, right? As a blessed individual. Blessed are the peacemakers. So we looked at how we could be a part of that. We talked about the guardrails of grace later on. David makes a bad decision. Remember, he moves out of Israel. He moves in with the Gentiles. He's serving a Gentile king. He's doing it for 16 months. But yet the call of God on his life is still to be the king of Israel. So when he lines up in battle and he gets ready to do a vicious, vile thing, something that will harm the nation harm his testimony, probably never allow the nation to unite behind him. David lines up and gets ready to fight against. He's fighting for the Philistines. He's getting ready to fight against the nation of Israel. And if you remember in that passage, the the Philistine commanders come forward and they say, we're not going to battle with him. You need to send him home. And the point of that sermon was simply this. You and I, at times... ...are getting ready to make a bad decision... ...and God removes that opportunity out of our hand... ...but most of the time we end up being insulted... ...frustrated or think God is hurting our plans... ...when what he is really doing is saving our future. Because if David goes to war... ...as is bodyguard... ...he will either have to betray his own honor... ...or he will have to fight against his own people. And he has worked himself into a position where there's no getting out of it without hurting the rest of his future. And God intervenes in a way that he didn't understand then. If you remember when we read that passage, David is offended. David is angry. What have I done in the last 16 months of your service? What makes you think I won't be a good servant? And Akish says, you just need to go because the commanders have spoken. And in that moment, David doesn't understand, but God is removing a really bad decision, one way or the other. Because David has given his word he will be a good soldier for King Achish, but he's also to be the next king of Israel. David gets desperate, his faith is weak, and he does things that aren't good decisions. God feels distant in the moment and he starts to make bad decisions. But God intervenes later, grabs him, and removes him from the position. And David, even in that moment, still doesn't know that it's a grace. Sometimes you and I need to remember that God is working in a playing field that you and I don't understand. He can see your future. He knows your heart. He knows the blessings that you need. And sometimes the hardest things that you are going through are to protect you from who you would become or what your future would look like if you got that thing, that promotion, that new job, right into that school. There's just a hundred different things you and I can look at. We need to realize that God is setting our life up with these guardrails of grace. God's plans have not changed. He, His will for and promises to David are still intact, and he will do what he needs to do to make sure David is ready. What a wonderful passage that was to dig in and to see God's goodness and God's sovereignty over these situations. But today, as we walk through the story, we, wrote back, we rotate back into King Saul. We, wrote back, we rotate back into his life in 1 Samuel 31, and actually we're going to come into the last moments of his life. And Saul has made some very poor decisions, and in that, uh, 1 Samuel 31, if you'll read with me. Now the Philistines were, right, were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab, and Malchai-shua, and uh, all of Saul's sons. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and he fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all of his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. Stop with me right there. What do we see in these first... Seven verses we see the, the tragedy of the end of Saul's life. His whole legacy is being destroyed. God has promised it. Now it will be fulfilled in this manner. It is it is wicked, it is violent, it is war, it is hard to read, but it is life. It is life, and life has not changed. Sometimes we get this perspective that it has because you and I have lived in relative safety. Saul has dishonored his God on repeat. Saul has cursed his life by never following through with repentance. Saul has cursed his own life by being wicked to righteous people. And now Saul's legacy is being destroyed as God promised it would be. Saul's army has fallen. His sons have died. Saul's will to live has been taken. Saul's life is lost. Saul's kingdom is left defeated scattered it's hard to read it's hard to think about that this was a real person and a real king it's really hard to think about that there were people in his life that were good people that suffered with him, his son Jonathan would be the biggest example he suffered with him a sobering idea for you and I to understand that our lives are connected they are intertwined for good or bad your home my home, our church, our community we feel the burdens of one another and the, the piece that we need to understand is it's supposed to be that way I mean what happens when you walk in on a Sunday morning and you rejoice with those that are rejoicing and you grieve with those that are grieving and it's both on the same Sunday our legacies, our lives are intertwined together we are living this together shouldering burdens, being blessed and also we're being cursed When you and I allow harmful people, bad people into our life that are doing bad things and we allow that to take place and we get close to them and we bring them close to us, you and I will share their curses. The end of Saul's life is a picture of this. He's still king and people are still following him. And because of that, these first seven verses are just disastrous. There's promise, punishment, and warning. There's promise for the king that there's a life ahead of you that can be good. There's warnings for the king. Don't do this. Don't do that. Stop doing this. And then there's punishment that comes. I want to read the rest of the story because it just lightens up a little bit. The next five verses are just the picture of some honorable people that are still there doing honorable things. Read with me. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor. This isn't the good part. It gets better after this. All right, ride with me. I'm sorry. I, I forgot there are a couple verses in between. <clears throat> so they stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land to the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of who? Pay attention. These are spiritual battles. And we always share them with our gods. These are spiritual battles. Molech and Dagon and whatever idol they're they're running pieces of Saul's body into didn't share the victory. It wasn't there. God mocks them. In, In the chapters 40 to 50 of Isaiah, God mocks all of them. If you remember the statue of Dagon, it's knocked over. They pick him back up. And God knocks him over again and lops his head off and his hands off, showing that he's not alive and he's not even helpful. He can't even take care of himself. But pay attention. These are still spiritual battles. Human beings are spiritual beings. And so in this moment, they're going to walk these pieces into where the house of their idols and to the people. They're going to put his armor in the temple of the Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night. They took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and buried uh, burned them there. They took their bones and burned them under the Tamarisk tree in Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. See, the life of Saul has ended, but I want you to understand something, the honor of the people around him did not. And so, when his life ends, and the honor does not, good men and women won't allow God's honor or Saul's honor to be stolen. You know, it's hard, it's, it's hard to equate this into what's going on in our culture. And so I'm just going to try my best because I'm kind of deviating right now just a little bit. But I want to apply this moment to the day we're living in. It's hard to figure this out because these these battles that we are fighting against, these these spiritual... Uh, Wars that we are partaking in that have a physical manifestation where people are running around on this side or that side. It's a little harder to pick this out because they're not running these victories into temples and laying them at idols, but it is still the same kind of battle. You and I battle not against flesh and blood. We battle against spirits and principalities. Satan himself is called the, the, the basically the prince and the ruler of this world. Right now he has been given a certain amount of authority and his minions are working all over the world. They lie, they deceive, they accuse. If they can't take you to hell... Right, Christian? They cannot do that. If they can't take you to hell, they will rob you of your victory. And then as you, you and I walk through these battles, when we lose a war, it's marched right into their, their idol's house. And whether that idol be sex or power or money, fame or fortune, there's a battle going on. And when our life and and God coming through our life is not uh, bigger than the idol that we are pushing against and fighting against, you better believe that every time you fail, why is it that people are so quick to point out when you fail? Because they want to march that victory into the house of their idol and say, look, our God is better than theirs. I want to put this on the playing field today. It's just hard to do when we're not running into the asteroid and and laying the head of Saul down as a a victor would and say our God has won this battle, but the world still does it. That's why they work so hard to watch you and I fail. I was listening to a brother talk uh, earlier this week. It's why the people at his work set him up to fail. And then when he reacts in a way that doesn't look Christ-like or at least the Christ-like that they think is the reason why they point it out immediately. Young ones, it's the reason why you'll be tempted to do things that are not biblical, not godly. And then when you do, those same friends will turn their back on you or they'll mock you or they'll curse you as someone that's just like them. This is a spiritual battle and we're we're basically uh, checking the box for whose God is winning. It's also the reason why when some of us Some of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world go through amazingly hard things. It's the reason why the world can't comprehend that. It's the reason why Jesus said one of the pieces that he'll look at is he'll say that the way you all love each other, the world will know you love me. It's the reason why the church is so important, why Jesus' people is so important. Why? Because that's a victory in God's box. When you and I have things in our life that are bigger than everything this world would mandate tear us apart, The world looks at that, and not only do they say that is different, but many of them will gently whisper, I want something like that. Because they don't have it. Because the world can't offer it. So it's not the cross we carry or wear around our neck. It's not the Jesus fish on the back of our car. It's not even the way we speak about God and his word. It's not the way that we lift up the name of Jesus every time we get a chance or when the opportunity comes up. The world is drawn to know that we love Jesus by the way you and I love each other. That is a powerful piece that Jesus says himself. So when we look at this passage of Samuel the idea is the Philistines are going to declare victory and so they're going to take Saul's uh, honor and they're going to put it in the temple of their idols and they're going to say look at what our idols have done look at what our gods have done and they're going to take this victory they've taken his life and all that's left to take is Saul's honor and when they take Saul's honor they're taking Israel's hope and God's glory see so the men that act honorably next aren't just doing that for Saul They're doing that for the nation and for their God. You and I can honor positions and help the hurting. How do we react when an ungodly person dies? We can help the hurting. We can love them and help them grieve. We can show honor to our God by the way we honor those that are left. So we need to be very careful because this passage is really kind of hard to see as, as something that's uh, you know black and white that we can apply today and just kind of walk through. I will say this, we don't gloat in the death of the wicked, unlike so many people on social media uh, that love to uh, honor the death of godly men and women with snide comments and nasty remarks, and even this week we see as, as uh, Herman Cain went home to be with the Lord, uh, the reaction of so many is just disheartening. We live We live with evil people. That's not the way we react. God takes care of the judgment. You and I need to help and love those that are left. And we need to take those moments to honor God. So let's look through the, Saul, the, the life of Saul quickly. We're just going to see this lesson in potential. And then we're going to walk through uh, these areas that you and I have talked about in the last couple months. Because I want to wrap this thing up. We've seen the consequences of of the decisions that have been made in the weeks that you and I have talked about already. Most of these stories we've already talked about. So this was like a major review. But what do we see as potential? What have we seen from Saul? 1 Samuel chapter 9. Am I not the least of these? Why then have you spoken to me this way? What's going on in that passage? Samuel, the prophet, has met Saul. And he's told Saul some fascinating things. Including the idea that he's going to be king. This reaction is amazing. The humility of the moment is spectacular. Am I not the least of the tribe of Benjamin? Why are you speaking to me in such a way? I mean, Saul could have already been puffed up. He could have already been proud. He was head and shoulders above all the other nation. He was the man that they picked to be their king. He could have been prideful already and yet he finds himself in a position of humility what happens a couple chapters later there's an ultimatum given to the one of the, the towns in the nation of israel right you're going to serve us or you're going to die we're going to basically mutilate you for the rest of your life but you will live or will come and we will slaughter you and as saul hears this as king to be he comes in and he says why are the people weeping what happens right after that is the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him and he's getting ready to be bold and brave. Why are they grieving? Why are they weeping? Do we not serve the God of the universe? My people will not hurt. My people will not grieve. And so we see two pieces of wonderful, wonderful potential. But listen, friends, here's where Saul loses it with humility. If humility, Is partnered with gratitude. It is the greatest of earthly foundations. Listen to me very carefully. Humility has to be partnered with gratitude because if not, the enemy will taint it and make it cowardice. You say, What does it look like for me, the Christian? Let me give it to you this way You've been saved, redeemed, you're a child of God. Dare we even say enlisted in his army? Now, you were called forth in your life to go do something with that. And you could say, well, man, that sounds amazing, but that's really not for me. It's just a slight twist as opposed to, that sounds amazing. That's not within me, but if God says it's so, then so be it. If the Lord wants that done, then so be it. We all marvel at the way Mary reacts to the angel. Why? Because it's humility and gratitude. If that's God's will, then let's do this. If you don't wrap humility and gratitude, it will become cowardice. Because it has nothing to hang on to. How can you be humble and grateful? Because God knows you and God knows me and he loves you dearly and he wants to use you magnificently for the kingdom. Do you see how this works now? I've told you for years that self-esteem needs to be destroyed. Like that language needs to come out of our mouth and never hit it again. It needs to be removed from our heart. Why? Because you and I have something better than self-esteem. When I really start to look at myself, I am not happy with what's there. It's evil, it's vile, it's manipulative, it wants to do this, it wants to do that, it wants to lash out, it wants to be like the enemy. But when I look there and I know that God loves me and he has saved me and he has put a new heart and a new person inside of me, the Holy Spirit now living through me, then I can be humble and I can be grateful. Saul's humility is not found wrapped in gratitude Your bravery has to be coupled with faith. When your bravery is coupled with faith, it leads to an unstoppable force for good. We see glimpses that Saul is humble. We see glimpses that he is brave. But we don't see glimpses of gratitude and faith. As his life pushes forward, we will actually see that those two things are not only missing, but they get progressively worse. See, Saul's life is a call to repent. It is a call to repent. Saul lives in a manner void of real repentance. 1 Samuel 9, Samuel Samuel, uh, uh, speaks to him and tells him what's going on. What happens immediately? 1 Samuel 10, Saul refuses to tell his uncle what he's actually been told. Remember that story? We've talked about it. Saul's out looking for his father's donkeys. Samuel comes in and says, the donkeys are fine, you're going to be king. The next passage, Saul's uncle comes in and says, man, what's been said? And Saul responds with, oh, the donkeys are fine, and he just shuts off the message. It's already showing signs that there's cowardice kicking in. He's not ready to give the full potential of what God has told him. And then what happens? He hides his calling and then he hides himself. Remember, they're going to anoint him as king. And what do they say? Where is Saul at? They say, well, he's in the baggage. He's hidden in the luggage. Somebody go get him and carry him up here. We're going to make this guy king. Would that not have been a red flag? Bing! Right? Maybe he's not the one. Right, like I don't want the boastful guy rolling in, you know, saying worship me. But I don't want the guy that's hidden in the baggage either. I need someone that's going to walk in humbly and say, "Yes, Lord, if this is what you want, let's do it." For Samuel ten, he hides his calling, and then he hides himself. Man, there's a real lesson here for you and I. You've been called to a lot in your life. And mothers, you know you have been too. But every time I do a wedding, I'm reminded that, men, you're going to line up first. You're going to line up first. And you're going to hand Jesus back what's rightfully his. Your wife, your children, your grandchildren. So in that, I would look at you, don't be like Saul. Be humble in what God has given. And then be authoritative in how you care for it and how you steward it. Don't hide from your calling. Don't hide on Netflix. Don't hide on your cell phone. Don't hide in your favorite sport. Don't hide in your favorite hobby. Don't hide on the golf course. Get into life and get engaged. Do not hide your calling or yourself. Because there will come a day that you can't when the person asks for back what is his. What do we see in 1 Samuel 13? He shows a distrust in God's timing and then fails to own his failure. What happens in 1 Samuel 13? Do you remember that passage? The nation of Israel is getting ready for war. King Saul is standing there. He is the one that's getting them ready. He has been told to wait for Samuel to come and offer sacrifice to God and then move forward for the glory of God and the power and the presence of God. And what does Saul do? Samuel runs a little late. According to Saul, not according to God or Samuel, right? The Lord is seldom early, but he is never late. That's what I was told one day when I was in a counselor's office at Liberty whining about the amount of money that I was going to have to pay here shortly. God is seldom early. He is never late. Saul doesn't know that lesson. He doesn't learn that lesson. So Saul takes the position of Samuel and he offers sacrifice to God. As he finishes that moment, guess who shows up? Samuel. Saul. What have you done? He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. Disaster has just happened. And you say, what does it look like to deal with someone that will not repent? It looks just like that passage. Saul says, you did the wrong thing. They were leaving me. This is what God wanted, so I forced myself. And he never repents. He loses the kingdom in that moment. In a rash decision, he shows distrust in God's timing and then he fails to own his failure. The form and the practice over relationship is what Saul is falling for right now. Instead of resting in God and trusting in God, Saul thinks the form matters more than the relationship. So I have to do this, but I will sacrifice obedience to do it. And So he goes against what God has commanded in that passage, and then he blames everyone else in the world except himself. Believers, listen to me. You cannot apologize like this. You couldn't do it at the moment of salvation. You can't do it one minute after that. At the moment of salvation, if you walk in and you say, God, you're cool, and I appreciate this, but you know, if they hadn't done this, and you hadn't made me this way, and some of these things weren't so fun and so good that you had given me, then I, okay, but yeah, all right, I probably shouldn't have done that stuff. That's not repentance. I have broken your law. I have broken your will. I deserve hell, and death, and yet you give life. Save me, make me one of yours. Use me, mold me, and make me new. Such a huge difference between conversion, discipleship, and salvation. You and I cannot repent like Saul, not the moment we got saved, and not any time after that. How about 1 Samuel 14? He makes a def- desperate attempts to satisfy his pride Costing him dearly. What happens in 14? Saul looks and says, I've been dishonored, so we're not eating until my honor is restored. His son doesn't hear that. Has a little dip of honey off the battlefield. He ends up winning a huge battle. And then all of a sudden Saul says, whoever crosses me will die. He's going to have to kill his own son. Because he made a desperate attempt at his own pride. And in that, the men of the the army stand up on Jonathan's behalf and save his life. But Saul is all about satisfying his own pride. How can a man start so humble and now end so disastrously? How about 15? Saul defies God's commands again. And when called to account for it, what's he do? He does the exact same thing. He blames others. What happens in this passage? God says, go wipe them off the map. They have done wicked, horrible things. Leave nothing. There should be no remnant. So Israel goes out and they fight a war and they win a victory. And they come back in and guess who shows up again? Samuel. And Samuel walks in and Saul says, man, God has done it. We have been victorious. And Samuel says, why do I hear the bleeding of sheep? If you've been victorious and done what God asked you to do, why do I hear the bleeding of sheep? Saul, once again, rotates right back into it. Well, uh, the people wanted to offer a sacrifice to God, and you know how uh, hardcore they are, and it's really hard to, to deal with when they get all frenzied up. He blames others. He disrespects his own position as king. I love that because Samuel looks at him and says, Are you not the king? Husband? There's going to come a day when God's going to say, Are you not the husband? Dad, (coughs) Dad, there's going to come a day. God's going to look at you and say, are you not the father? Don't disrespect your position. Claims to be honoring God, he half apologizes and then he tries to force his will. Why? Because Samuel says, the kingdom has been torn away from you this day. And he walks away and when Samuel walks away, says, Saul says, please just at least come with me into the city, please just save my honor just one more time. And he grabs a hold of Samuel's cloak and he tears it trying to force his will. And Samuel says, just like my cloak is torn, the kingdom will be torn from you. Saul's life is a call to repent. 1 Samuel 17, what happens? 1 Samuel 17 is David and Goliath. Where's Saul? He's hidden. We see the cowardice again. It's getting bigger. What happens in 18? A, a cowardly king envies. What happens in 18? The people of Israel are saying, call, Saul has killed his thousands. David his ten thousands. And what happens in the king's heart? All oh, his cowardice has left him now envious his call and his testimony could have been exactly the same as David's. Is God not there for him too? Could he not have walked out in the faith of God and slayed the giant? Instead, he was hidden. Of all the people at the nation of Israel that should have been the one to go forward, remember Saul was head and shoulders above them all. He was the closest one to the height of Goliath. It should have been him. And instead, he waited 40 days while the enemy dishonored his God and dishonored his kingdom. And so what happens in 1 Samuel 18 is that David's testimony has taken off. And now Saul is envious. In 19, what's he do? He tries to kill David. An evil king tries to kill a righteous man. 1 Samuel 22, the evil king kills the priests of God at Nob. He slaughters the men of God because they unknowingly gave David aid. They gave him a bite to eat and a sword. So what's the evil king do? He slaughters them. And the day before he dies, what's he do? In 1 Samuel 28, he reaches out to the witch at Endor. He reaches out to the demonic for help. He has spiraled so far out of control. God is so distant from his prayers and his voice that he will reach out to the other side just to resurrect Samuel one more time to speak to him. What did he think that message was going to be? Why have you bothered me from my rest? Saul, this is not good news. You are in trouble. The life of Saul is one of promise. It's one of potential. But it's one that fails because he will not repent. It's a call to repentance this morning to you and I, even for the rest of our lives, how we understand it. How we interact with it. When you have to tell someone you're sorry, don't say it like Saul. Don't give Saul sorries. Keep going until I mess that up. Don't give those kinds of sorries. Well, if you hadn't done this, or if that person hadn't been so mean to me, or you don't get to do that, kill that. That is the unrighteous servant that Jesus talks about. Remember the one that was forgiven all the mess, lifetimes of debt just forgiven, and then they go out and try to shake down somebody for a couple months' money? And Jesus says, that is a wicked servant. Don't be that kind of servant. When you have to apologize, when you have to repent, especially to God, do so owning more than is yours to carry. The life of Saul is a sobering reminder that men don't end evil, vicious, and vile by accident. They grow into it by a series of smaller and unchecked sins. Saul didn't wake up. In 1 Samuel 28, begging the witch at Endor to revive Samuel and give him the direction for what was next. He didn't wake up there. He woke up as a coward one day and hidden, and nobody called him out. And then he got envious, and nobody called him out. And then he got slightly wicked, and nobody called him out, and it just kept going. Smaller and unchecked sins. From humble to coward, from coward to envious, from envy to evil. And the real piece to this idea that you and I need to grab right now and today is that hard days need repentant people. It needs hard people, but it needs repentant people. As they come this morning to play, that's the last idea I want to leave with you. We are in hard days, and we need repentant people. Why? Because what does repentance do? It draws us in closer to the heart of God. Repentance shows humility. Repentance shows faith, because what happens when you and I repent? This is magnificent. God doesn't boot you out of the family. Do you understand me? One of the most amazing things about real and good love is that. When I come in and I lay my nastiness down before my Lord, He doesn't boot me out. If He did or He wanted to, He would have when I'd done it. A good and loving and gracious God grabs you and I like the prodigal's father, dresses us properly, and then throws us a party. There's a magnificent idea that we cannot grab. Why? Because our idea of love is so broken. You and I, like we see this moment, like we long for vengeance. Like some of us are so poisoned in our heart that we hope someone apologizes just so we can pour out how bad they were to us. That's not god and because you and i have that slight little idea in our head we think he operates the same way that's not what happens god says you are not hiding anything anyway let's get back to work there will be consequences absolutely but the grace of god has not been overshadowed the will of god has not been pushed through you are not so broken that you cannot be useful and you are not so broken that you cannot one day hear well done starts with repentance. The power, the authority, the will of God flow through our lives as repentance is real. Do not apologize like Saul. Apologize like David, Psalm 51. If you want to see what real repentance looks like, go to Psalm 51 today and read that as your homework and you will see it most amazing piece is simply this. David says against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. The whole story is not about God and David. It's about what David has done to Uriah and his wife and the child and the nation. Sin, man. Sin is always against God. May we learn to repent. May we use it as a weapon instead of avoiding it. Why? Because it'll put so much power in your life. Learn to tell people you're sorry, and when you learn to tell God you're sorry, and then to walk another direction, to turn around.